Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Nason. This is a show about books and the people who write them. Each week we feature conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction about their latest work. If you'd like to know more about the author or if you'd like to check out our blog, please do so at InsideTheWritersCafe.net. The impact of technology and business values are the hot topics for this week's show. In his new book, The New Experts, published by Greenleaf Book Group Press, Robert Bloom, former U.S. Chairman and CEO of Publicist Worldwide, discusses the new Internet-empowered customer. Dr. Mary Gentile reveals in her new book, Giving Voice to Values, published by Yale University Press, that acting on our values is a skill set that is just as learnable as ethical decision-making. Bob Bloom is the U.S. Chairman and CEO of Publicist Worldwide, a global marketing services company. He's helped craft and implement growth strategies for some of the world's largest companies, including BMW, Nestle, Southwest Airlines, and T-Mobile. Bob is also an entrepreneur, and he's joining us today to talk about his new book, The New Experts, Win Today's Newly Empowered Customers at Their Four Decisive Moments. Bob Bloom, it is such a pleasure to talk to you again. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. Thanks, Cheryl, for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to talk to you uh, today, and uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you before about my first book, The New Experts, uh, and I look forward to our chat. Oh, me too. I mean, I loved you then. And I can't wait to talk about this because you have got your finger on a pulse that I don't think anyone else has put their finger on. Let's give our listeners just a little overview of this book, and then let's talk about some specifics and give them some takeaways. Well, I'm surprised that there aren't a hundred people writing books about this subject, subject. and, and I, I was frightened every day, uh, right up to Pub Day on September 1st, that the, the, that, that there was going to be a that, that I was going to find a lot of books about it. I'm surprised uh, that there aren't. What this book is about is the profound change in, in customer behavior uh, that uh, a and the emergence of an entire new generation of informed, aggressive, and empowered customers who no longer care where or from whom they purchase. Um, This behavior is permanent, it's irreversible, and it will intensify because um, the next generation of new experts which is what I call this, this current generation, the next experts, the next generation will be smarter, uh, more agile on the computer, uh, more, uh, more, and have learned lessons from their parents and grandparents of this generation. So it's about these new experts, and, and people think, oh, it's some kid who, who's, who's, who's got an iPhone. No, it's, it's your mother. It's your grandmother, it's your kid, it's everybody, it's you. You are a new expert because uh, you have ult- 
ultimate information and instant information on the internet about every product or service you are interested in buying. You have uh, a large uh, choice in every single category of commerce today. Anything you want to buy, you've got choices. You don't sell me, uh, Cheryl. Somebody else will sell me. And then a final thing is I've got my iPhone, and I can I can evaluate your product and service, your price and service against everyone else's the instant I'm about to purchase and at the location of purchase. So the, the reality is what this book is about, the transformation of the buyer-seller equation that was historic, and now the buyer is in charge of the selling progression, not the seller. And I'm like you. When I saw this book, I told you, the moment I opened the package, read the title, looked through it, saw what it was about, and saw your name, I immediately sent word to your two publicists at Westman PR, I want to talk to Bob about this because I think this is so important. Now, you've done something before anybody even opens the book. The cover of the book contains a QR code. What in the world is that, and why is the technology so valuable? Uh, the technology is valuable because it was uh, it, it is it, it will change the landscape of so many industries and of buying and so forth. This is uh, it, it, let's if you if you go to the grocery store and buy a can of peas, you have a scanner uh, on that peas, and the, and, the, and the scanner tells the uh, checkout person. Uh, to uh, charge you dollar uh, thirty eight uh, for the peas and and it tells the 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 store to reorder um, if you go to the airport, obviously you have a scanner you've got to go through that so what the QR code is developed by the Japanese a number of years ago and used ubiquitously now in japan it has it's, it has more storage capacity just as simple as that it's a multi dimension uh, scanner code, but it has more storage capacity. Uh, and on the book, you can take your uh, if you if your device is is, is 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 so powered, you can you can scan the back of my book, the the, the QR code on the on the book. You'll you'll see it. It's quite there visually, and and you go right to my website. But in the future, this is what's going to happen. That next generation QR code whatever it's going to look like or be like, it's going to have more storage capacity, more ability, more power, just like all the rest of the apps today. And it's going to be in every television commercial that you're watching. So let's say, uh, Cheryl, you're at home watching a television commercial and you see a BMW convertible that you've always wanted. Normally, and what you had to do and what your parents and grandparents had to do was to get out of the house, go to the dealer. But that QR code is going to be is going to be visible right there in your television commercial, not this one, but the next generation, and you're going to be able to sit there with your hand held, uh, and you're going to be able to scan it. It will take you directly to the dealer near you because it knows where you are because of the of the information. So once you scanned it, they, I know where you are, uh, and scary, but but the truth. No kidding. And, and, wow. And the, and the nearest dealer, and you're going to be able to buy that 
convertible sitting in your home without ever moving. Then if you really want to look around the corner, which is what I always encourage people to do, don't look ahead. You, you don't find anything looking ahead. You, you'll see a horizon. But, but that horizon was seen by a Greek uh, 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 scholar in 500 BC, and nothing's changed since that same horizon. So you don't see any, what you got to do is look around the corner. So uh, what will happen? There was an announcement recently. This is not in the book, but an announcement recently that Procter Gamble is going to start selling uh, certain brands and products online directly to the consumer. This is a magical break the bank change. And when that happens, there'll be a run on the bank, in essence, and everybody will start. So let me ask you a question. If that QR code can get you to respond, why do they need a dealer? They don't. Uh, they don't. The middlemen and what Procter & Gamble said in their announcement, not me, but what they said is that we don't believe we have to go through the retailer to sell everything. Yeah. So if you're a middleman, I'm going to call it middleman, but a middle person uh, in, in any business, dealer, distributor, retailer, and so forth, you are an endangered species, uh, whether that's a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, or 10 years from now, it'll be soon because the technology exists. It just has to be embedded in every print ad, every television commercial, go right to it and buy that on PayPal or whatever you're going to do. And that's an absolute total shift in the way that things work. That's total. right. That's the future. But today, uh, what it's done is to empower customers right now, right now, today, to compare your price with other vendors instantly and at the point of purchase uh, so that uh, you, they have the ultimate weapon, which is knowledge. Uh, let me just say, Cheryl, your father or grand and grandfather, you and you, uh, before had to go to the dealer, the car dealer, to get a brochure about the car. You could not get that brochure at the library or any other place. You had to go to the car dealer. He, she, the dealer, had all the power because they had all the knowledge. Today, uh, you have the knowledge, and you have more knowledge than most of these dealers uh, or salespeople or whatever it is because they've gotten complacent about it and you've got knowledge about the product or service when you immediately contact them. That's what's going on right now. And you have choice and you have this comparative uh, device and you have social media that puts all sellers in a glass house. All sellers today, I don't care what you sell, you're in a glass house and you're naked. Why? <laughs> because uh, you, you are, and, and you're naked. Right. Why, why, why is this? Because uh, it is kind of uh, ludicrous, and, 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 but you are. Why? Because your mother and grandmother used to lean over the back fence and tell somebody about a new store that opened. Now, uh, you get on Twitter or, 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 or Facebook, and you tell millions of people around the world about your experience in that store and buying it 
whether it was good or bad, whether it was perceived or real, you're telling somebody. So the, the idea is every moment that a customer contacts you, every customer experience that you have as a seller, you are in a glass house, and because they're telling people about your uh, interaction with them, whether it was good or bad. And Lord help you if it's a negative experience because, you know, the old saw used to be if a customer or someone has a negative experience with an organization, they'll tell 11 to 20 people. Now you need to add lots and lots and lots of zeros after those 11 to 20 people because you're right, it's just absolutely exploded. I want us to talk about, pretty quickly, because we've only got about five minutes or so, but I want to talk about the four decisive customer moments. Okay. And, and I want to give some takeaways. I mean, I think you've done a wonderful job with, with what you've said, but I want our listeners to have some things that they can close their hands around that when they go to the bookstore or go online is what they'll do and buy this book, they'll already know some of the things that they're going to get. So let's talk about those four decisive customer moments. Okay. In each of my books, and in particularly in this one, uh, I provide a solution. It doesn't do uh, readers any good to say, uh, this is the problem. Uh, you got to have a solution. And my solution is to create customer preference. Look, uh, uh, loyalty is virtually dead, customer loyalty. 30 years ago, uh, four out of five car buyers bought the same brand. Uh, in 2009, one out of car buyers bought the same brand. Loyalty is a thing of the past. Why? Because of all the things we talked about, the customers in control. Now, there are four moments, four decisive moments at, at, in every customer progression. I don't care what kind it is. These are the same moments that happen every time. They happen differently, but happen every time. One is the now or never moment. It's your first brief contact. And usually today, it's on the internet, and usually it's on a site. And if that site doesn't grab you, your finger right now is on that delete button to delete that site. If you call someone and they ask you to hold, and you get tired of holding, you hang up. So Every now or never moment is your first brief contact with the customer. He or she is contact you. Why? Because they're interested in buying something. Why would they be doing it if they weren't interested? So this person is already in a consideration mode. Now, let me say about these four decisive moments. They are codependent and they are sequential. You don't get them at the now or never moment. You never get them at the second, third, or fourth moment. So the second moment uh, is the make or break moment. Why do I call it make or break? Because it's the lengthy transaction process. Now, if the now or never moment was seconds, uh, the break or make or break moment is a long one. Why? Because it now has three, cons three phases. It always had Two, one was consideration. Well, I'm considering buying your product or service. The second, which has really gotten long, is negotiation. Now, negotiation, it takes a long time, and, it's, and it can be very difficult. And the final is the transaction, signing that contract, get, giving someone the credit card, and that's the make-or-break moment. And you have to win them at the now-or-never moment in order to get to the make-or-break moment. Then the third one is the keep-or-lose moment. This is the phenomenal moment that most sellers forget about and don't realize they have. It's the customer's usage of the product, continued usage of the product. 
what better way to reinforce your uh, your relationship with that customer, your performance for that customer, the product or service that he or she bought from you is that time when they're using the product. Let me just ask you a question, Cheryl. If if one out of five car buyers buying the same brand in 2009, shame on those people who are selling them, the car dealers and the car because they had your name, they had your email address, they had your phone number. Why didn't they stay in touch with you and say, are you having good driving experiences that I can do for you? Thank you for buying from me. That's a perfect moment to get to the last moment, which is the multiplier moment. Why I call it the multiplier moment, it is the moment that you get repeat purchase, uh, you get advocacy, and you get referral. One of the problems that business people face today is customer churn. Literally, they get that customer, they go off and try to win a second customer, and that first customer's gone away. Why? Because what you didn't do was to was to keep them at each sequential moment and bring them back to the repurchase, uh, profitable repurchase, profitable advocacy. Hey, Cheryl, I ate at a great Italian restaurant the other day. You're going to love it. That's advocacy. And the, and the other one is referral. So many businesses depend on referral, uh, an essential part of it. And if you don't know how to generate referrals, read my book. I'll tell you exactly how to do that. Oh, you are just so fascinating, Bob. I am so sorry that our time is up. Because uh, I just I'm so interested in this, and you just are saying things. The thing I really, really like about you and your work is that you got where the rubber meets the road. The things that you just said, the four decisive customer moments, are in everything. And I'm sitting here, and and my brain is spinning while you're going through those four, and I'm thinking, yes, 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 because everything you say makes perfect sense, and the book expands on those ideas and one of the other things I like is that at the end of every chapter you have a little series of questions in a, a sort of a box that says take a moment to consider I just think this is terrific thank you I know you're such a busy man and I thank you so much for taking time out of a really busy schedule to be my guest today on inside the writers cafe if our people listening want to know more about you want to know more about the book, I know you have a Grab Me Now website. What's the address? www.thenewexperts, plural, www.thenewexperts.com. Very straightforward, um, and and I, I hope it's engaging. And thank you very much, Cheryl, for having me on your show and for asking such interesting and provocative questions. I enjoy our dialogue. Thank you. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Author and scholar Dr. Mary C. Gentile is the director of the Giving Voice to Values curriculum and senior research scholar at Babson College. She consults on management education and values-driven leadership. During her tenure at the Harvard Business School, she developed and taught the school's first course on managing diversity and helped design the first required module on ethical decision-making. Her articles have appeared in the Harvard Business Review, Strategy Plus Business, Biz Ed, CFO Magazine, and Risk Management. 
And she's joining us today on Inside the Writer's Cafe to discuss her timely new book, Giving Voice to Values, How to Speak Your Mind When You Know What's Right. Mary, welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. Well, thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's such a pleasure for me to be able to talk with you. I mean, I told you before we even started the interview how taken I was with your book and the ideas that are in your book. Before you and I really start rocking and rolling and talking (laughs) about all these ideas, let's give our listeners just an overview of the book, and then let's talk about some specifics. Absolutely. Well, basically, this book is based on work I've been doing for a couple decades. I've been working with uh, business schools around the world, MBA programs, and also working with businesses and organizations and looking at questions of how do we um, uh, instill uh, and uh, encourage people to act on their values in the workplace. And I I came to the conclusion that we were going about it um, in, uh, if not the wrong way, an incomplete way. We spend so much time focusing on trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, and we spent very little time on um, giving people the opportunity to practice and to learn about how to act on their values effectively um, when they already know what they believe to be right. And so that's basically the idea behind the book, uh, trying to um, uh, encourage a new way of thinking about uh, values-driven leadership and to share some some tips, some skills, some strategies, some tactics that I've gathered from my conversations uh, with people over the years. I'm sure that maybe our our listeners are sitting there going, okay, wait a minute. What's the difference between values and ethics and morals? So let's give them a little definition. Right. Um, Well, you'll notice the name of the book is Giving Voice to Values, and the reason uh, that was not accidental, the reason I focus on values rather than ethics or morals um, as the the title of the book and as the the kind of hook to get folks um, engaged is because when you think about ethics, you're usually thinking about systems of rules and norms um, for what the right thing to do is. It's often, uh, there are often systems that are developed for a particular um, professional area, legal ethics, medical ethics, business ethics. When you think about morals, you're thinking about um, virtues in the broadest sense. Um, in, in both of those cases, there there is this sense of, of, of rules and norms. When you think about values, I think uh, people intuitively think of this as something that comes from within themselves. And that really is at the heart of my approach, is rather than trying to preach at people, and to talk about thou shalt not. I'm really trying to engage the part of all of us that actually knows we have a set of values and would like to be able to act on them if we felt we could do so effectively. So focusing on values is a way to try and appeal to um, what people already would like to do at their best. I'm so glad that you made the point. The book is not a, quote, preachy book. End quote. I mean, I'm really, and I did air quotes. I'm quote. glad you felt that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I was trying to avoid that. <laughs> I know. I, it's, it's not preachy. I, I, it just, it captured me, and, and I know that if our listeners are even thinking about this at all, the news, it seems like every day we hear about someone 
who doesn't do the right thing. And I mm-hmm. have thought so often, I mean, I know this is something that that I guess everyone says, but it just seems like the society has lost so much about acting on doing the right thing. And it, And yet... When you, I teach some team building classes, and one of the things that is foremost in those team building classes, and we even do exercises around this, is shared values. Mm-hmm. It's so important in American business today because it's such a core component of working together as a team. How in the world can we help ourselves do the right thing without feeling like we're uh, trying to be the goody-goody child or preaching to the other people in the workplace. Right, right. Well, I, I so understand the sentiment that you're expressing, and I have to say that the the motivation and the driver behind the development of this approach, this giving voice to values approach, for me personally, really was a kind of crisis of faith um, where I had been working in the field of business ethics and values-driven leadership and education for a number of years, and I began to wonder if it was actually ethical to teach business ethics because we would have these conversations about doing the right place in the wor- the right thing in the workplace and then you know if people were being honest with me they would say well Mary this is all well and good but you know in the real world of business you can't really do these things. You can't really behave in this way. The pressures are all against you, even if you want to do the right thing. And so I I suffered a bit of a crisis of faith, um, but I, I started talking to people, interviewing people, having conversations and collecting stories from people who had, in fact, found ways to voice and act on their values in the workplace. People who had found clever strategies sometimes, sometimes clumsy strategies, but they had found ways to do so effectively. And I started to think this is the antidote antidote to the kind of despair, discouragement, or cynicism um, that you're describing, is that we have to start talking about people who have found ways to do this, not celebrating them as heroes, but rather actually trying to learn from the tactics that they've used. Because one of the things that that I learned when I started reaching out to people, I would, you know, ask them, I'd say, you know, tell me about a time when when your values conflicted with what you were asked to do in the workplace and how you handled it. And people would often say to me, Mary, sure, I'll tell you a story about how I acted on my values. But I also want to tell you some stories about times when I didn't. And what I started to learn from that is that if we think about this as finding the good people and the bad people, you know, we often talk about weeding out the bad apples. If we if we look at it that way, we are going to get very discouraged very quickly, and we're also missing the point because I we all can think of times when we have found ways to voice and act on our values. We all are capable of this. But we all can think of times when we failed to do so. And I think that what this is really about is saying the world is a complicated place, and in order to do this, we have to build the skill and build the muscle and build the confidence 
just as we would if we were trying to build the ability to develop a, a new product or a new business strategy that we hoped would be very effective. I think often when it comes to ethics and when it comes to values, we preach courage. We say everyone needs moral courage. And of course, to a certain extent, that's true. But I think if we're very skillful at it and we're more confident and we've actually practiced the arguments um, for some of the very predictable, predictable kinds of conflicts we might encounter, it requires less courage and more competence. <laughs> and so really I'm trying to reframe the whole agenda so that it, it lowers some of the stress level, it lowers some of the anxiety level, it lowers some of the hype, and that it allows us to think about this as a muscle that we can train. I like that. And I like one of my favorite parts of the book, and how silly is this, is mm. the appendix. I <laughs> loved the appendix. Because here are, in these little gray pages, tools and mm-hmm. ideas and strategies that I can almost mentally and physically get my hands around and actually you give me some tools and some things to do let's talk about the the things that are in the appendix now that of course is going to be the sort of the end of the book and the boiled down interesting information that you've written about in the whole book but starting assumptions for giving voice to values is the very first thing that's in the in the appendix and there are a series just of numbers and ideas like number one says, I want a voice and act on my values, and then you give some suggestions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, the reason I did that, the reason I created this list of, as I call them, starting assumptions for giving voice to values, is because I was thinking like an educator. And uh, you know what you often encounter in the classroom, but you also encounter this in your daily lives, is that if you raise these issues, people will start to raise all the yes, but kind of objections. And they'll start to say, well, that's all fine in a perfect world, you know, but, uh, you know, most people aren't going to do this. Or, um, you know, it's really not possible to do this if you're if you're in a sales function. Or um, you can't do this when you're operating overseas. You know, there's all kinds of, of, of uh, rationalizations that people will bring up. And so in order to actually... Um, have the conversation to tap into my and your creativity and innovation and and confidence that there may way, may indeed be a way through this challenge, I felt like we needed to put some of those objections on hold for a minute. Uh, because what I think what happens is is uh, when we encounter a values conflict, people will engage in what I call preemptive rationalizing, which is, you know, you kind of have a feeling something's wrong, but you know it's going to be hard to address it. So you start thinking about all the objections and you start justifying to yourself about how maybe it's not so wrong after all, or maybe it's what everyone expects anyways, or maybe I don't have all the information, um, or maybe this is just um, the norm in this industry, or it's not my responsibility, it's my boss's responsibility. And so by going to the rationalizations first, we never even get to the point of thinking creatively about whether there are any options. And so by creating this list of starting assumptions, what I'm trying to do is say to people, let's engage in a thought experiment. You're not committing anything here. You're not promising anything. Let's just say, what if 
you wanted to voice and act on your values in this situation? How might you get it done? And so to create the safe space for that thought experiment, we need to think about these starting assumptions. And they're things like most of us would like to act on our values if we thought we could do so effectively. And voicing our values can lead to better decisions because we have more input into the conversation. And the kinds of reasons and objections that we experience for not voicing our values are fairly predictable and they're vulnerable to response and argument. And by naming those assumptions and thinking about them a little bit, we actually ask uh, people to engage in a kind of informed consent. Let's just you know, take a moment and create some space to think creatively and see if you believe there might be anything possible. Because I think otherwise we... We preempt ourselves from even getting there, and uh, so that's why I created that. You know, as I as I read the book and as you and I've been talking, uh, these two stories of my own keep jumping into my head, and I really, oh, I love that when that oh, happens. They do. I mean, it's and one of them, <clears throat> I was an employee of a particular hospital, mm-hmm. and so this was the president of the hospital, and he did some things in a a retreat with, a, I mean, I was a de- department director. There was a whole group of us. There was a game. We had, of course, facilitators uh, doing this full-day getaway. You know how, how people mm-hmm. take their right. staff and do the staff training thing, and so that's what this is supposed to be, bonding experience. And he, during the course of that training session, cheated in a, a game we were playing with trainers. Mary, this is the truth. He cheated in this game. And I had always felt like this guy was a Janus. You know, he's two faces. Yep, two faces. Yeah, one, one, one to your face and then one behind your back. And after I watched him cheat at this mm-hmm. game, I thought, oh, my gosh. Because to me, that showed so much of, of what I'd sort of felt from him. And there were other incidents, et cetera. But the second was very interesting because it I was really hoist on my own petard, as she <laughs> said in Hamlet. Um, yeah, I'm former English teacher. Does that not come <laughs> through? Yeah, I know. I, I'm a consultant by profession. That's really how I make money. Mm-hmm. And so frequently I'm called on to construct full-day workshops and, and those kinds of things for organizations. And I was contacted by... I'm going to be careful here because this is a nationally known organization, uh, and it's a trade school kind of mm-hmm. organization. And I was contacted by a, a gentleman who um, had heard of me and asked me to come out, and so I went out and toured the facility, and I was blown away. I mean, it was incredible. They were doing some fabulous work with these students and had a, I mean, this was millions of dollars that they had sunk into this facility. So they were doing a session for their faculty. I met with the gentleman who was the decision maker on that campus, and he asked me to do some things. He asked me to only present three hours of information or two hours of information and then give them credit for like six or eight hours of information. Well, of course, in my mind, I'm gasping, as mm-hmm. well, and, and he's going to ask me to sign certificates. He's going to ask me to put my name on certificates that say that I didn't give them two hours or three hours or whatever it was. I gave them eight, which was a total lie and not true. Mm-hmm. And 
the moment it was out of his mouth, I'm doing the silent scream in yes. my head. <laughs> and so, of course, for me, this is a values, ethical, moral dilemma. Sure. Because I'm very uncomfortable with this, and I fought with it, I thought. You know, how do you turn down money? Because this was a full day, and I'm a consultant, and sure, I work without a net all the time. But I could not in good conscience do this, and so I tried to figure out how can I say to him without saying it out loud, you're asking me to do something that's violating my value, and, mm-hmm. and I'm very uncomfortable. So I did a very clumsy thing. I just overpriced the workshop. <laughs> I did. I overpriced the workshop. So I did that it. rule you out then? Or? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At first he came back and said yes, and then they had to run it to their corporate office. And, I mean, I priced this in the stratosphere because I thought, I do not want to work with you. Yeah, yeah. It made me so uncomfortable. So it was a very so let me just suggest, uh, so first of all, I totally understand. Let me just raise an alternative that you might think about. First of all, you know, good for you for knowing you didn't want to do that. Um, and you found a way to manage the experience. But one thing I would just uh, suggest that you might think about for future reference, and it's really what GVV is about, is that, you know, we make mistakes and then we learn from them and we try other things and it's trial and error just like any other part of our lives. But one thing I would imagine is if, if you were as clear as you were that you didn't want to engage in that activity, you were very clear it was wrong and it wasn't what you wanted to do, then you really wouldn't have had much at stake to think about some alternative ways of responding. And what you might have said is something along the lines of, um, gee, I really understand that um, you all are under a lot of time pressure. You probably have a lot of things that you need to communicate and a short amount of time that managers are willing to, you know, or that students are willing to allocate um, for the training that you're engaging in. I'm sure you can understand from my perspective that um, this was kind of an uncomfortable situation for me to be in. Could we think creatively about some ways to address this where I would feel that we were literally getting the six hours, eight hours, whatever it was, worth of education. Um, it may have may mean some time out of the classroom setting, some time on their own, et cetera, um, and you would still be able to address your needs in terms of timing. Now, there may not have been an answer, but what you would have done by presenting it that way, you'd end up in the same place you ended up not doing the job, um, you know, in the, in the worst-case scenario, but he would have heard your reason for not doing it that way. Um, and so it's just another thought, you know, that you might think about in a in a situation like that again if you ever got into it. I needed your book. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you podcast. never know. I, I have been surprised sometimes by when you start raising questions in this way where you acknowledge what's at stake for the other person and you turn it rather than into a this is ethical, unethical situation, but rather into a problem-solving negotiation or conversation, you never know what can happen. I've been surprised when people share these stories where I went into them assuming there was nothing to do but walk away, but because people turned it into a shared problem-solving situation where they acknowledge that there are stakes on both sides and where they don't necessarily immediately 
um, categorize the other person as evil, it allows them to participate in the conversation with you in a more open way. And sometimes sometimes things happen. <laughs> See, I love the idea. And, of course, I was just so so enmeshed in this. I couldn't. Oh, you were startled. Exactly. In fact, that's that's why one of the principles, there's seven principles of giving voice to values, but one of them is normalization. And what I mean by that is um, making it uh, less startling, more predictable, more normal to understand that these kinds of issues come up all the time and, and they are fairly predictable. And that way we don't have to go to that deer in headlight feeling where we freeze and and it, it kind of stifles our ability to think of options. You are fascinating and you know that you and I could sit here and chat. I would love that. <laughs> oh, me too, because I find you so interesting and the book is so good. Please... I, I want our listeners to understand that this really is just an exploration, and it's very interesting, and I think they'll be surprised at what they find in this book. And thank you, Mary, well, for thank taking you. time out of such a busy schedule to be with me today. Let's make sure that we give the website where people can find out more about you and find out more about the book. So they can go to www.givingvoicetovaluesthebook.com. And they will find uh, information about the book. They'll find links to the curriculum if they're educators. Um, And I really appreciate the chance to talk to you today. It was really fun. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thank you. Okay. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read.